0: So we're in this new series that we started last week, which is called Connect, and the simple idea is we're looking to equip each other, or be equipped, uh, by a passage in John chapter 4, particularly, in the whole world of evangelism. We've called it Connect because we're talking about what it is to be a church, to be people, if we are Christians, who connect to people in a powerful way, in a way that is authentic, and in turn, connecting those people to God. That's what our series is about. How do we do that? And last week, we didn't really get into the hows so much. If you were here, we've caught up. We kind of wanted to set the scene a little bit. And we didn't dive into too many of the hows. We talked about what it is to connect confidently. And we're kind of setting the scene. Rather than launching into how do we do this thing, which I think all Christians would generally agree it's something we want to do to help people hear about the good news of Jesus Christ. But we said before we get into the hows, we want to position ourselves confidently. Not in terms of being like, brash, but in terms of being secure and peaceful and courageous. And we do that by just landing ourselves in Jesus, in his commissioning of us, in his message, which is powerful in and of itself, in the work that he's done that is finished and the harvest is ready, and in his presence. Because it's in his presence that we are commissioned and encouraged and empowered and inspired. And this morning we will get into the kind of practicals, if you like. And I've called this morning Connecting uh, Through Conversation connecting through conversation and uh, from my teaching days I love the good acronym so if you love an acronym this is this is the message for you Uh, if you don't you'll be all right stick with me and I think we're going to go through the T-A-L-K-S and I pray and I'm that the passage is going to equip us to connect with people through conversation trusting that as we do that we can connect people uh, to God so what does the T stand for the T stands for time so if you don't know the passage in John chapter 4, it's been quite a foundational passage for us as a church, really. It kind of helped form our uh, eldership team last year, helped form our vision and values series last autumn, and it has a real power, as all the scripture does, to keep on teaching and instructing us. And in the passage, effectively, Jesus meets this woman at a well. He doesn't know her, but he leads her through conversation to God in him, and she then does the same. She leads others to God in him. But at the very, the passage is bookended by two you might think kind of throwaway lines, but I think they've got a little bit of significance about them. So the first uh, bookend of the passage is in verse 6, uh, in which Jesus says, or the passage says, Jesus was wearied from his journey. So Jesus spent 20 miles walking to Galilee, stops off at this well in Samaria, and we learn that he's weary. At the end of this whole passage, in which he encounters the woman and she draws others to him, we're told, uh, excuse me, <coughs> We're told uh, that when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, and he stayed there two days. He was weary at the beginning, and he stayed two days at the end. Like I say, quite seemingly throwaway lines. But I think it kind of struck me this week, because at the beginning of this encounter, Jesus is weary when he reaches the well, and at the end of it, he's prepared to stay two more days. Listen, when I feel weary whether physically thirsty or just spiritually, emotionally weary. I'm not sure I'm very good at giving people like another five minutes. And yet Jesus gets into this long conversation with woman he doesn't even know. I'm certainly not going to stay two days. If I stop off for a drink of water, I'm on a mission to get my water and move on. I'm not going to stay more than ten minutes, let alone two days. Jesus gives remarkable time to people. How does he do that? Why is he able to put his whole schedule on hold, throw it out the window effectively, and just stay two days connecting to people? Well, in simple terms, Jesus is able to connect with people because he connects with God. He's able to connect with people because he connects with God. At the beginning of the year, we did a series on busyness. And go to Mark chapter 1, I won't do it now, but in Mark chapter 1 you see all of this packaged up. You see Jesus who's super busy connecting with people, teaching, healing, all the way into the late of the night. But you also see that he prioritized time with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. It's all there in Mark 1, you can read it for yourself this week. At the beginning of Luke chapter 4 verse 1 it says, Jesus was full of the Holy Spirit. The reason he could give his time to people was because he prioritized time with the Father and with the Holy Spirit. And when it comes to giving our time to people, especially getting into conversations, even with strangers, whether we're an extrovert or introvert or somewhere on that spectrum, that will affect, won't it, how we relate to people and get energy and so forth. But that to one side, I put it to you, that whether you're an extrovert or an introvert, regardless of that, how we connect to people has to come from a place of personal connection with God. So how are we doing that? If you're a Christian this morning, we're seeking to grow as a church and connecting to people and connecting to God, where's your chair? Which is a reference to a couple of years ago we did a teaching series called Vital Signs and there was a video we showed that I think seemed to resonate with some of us. And it showed a video of a, of a story of a, an old man who as a young man came to faith and was like, what's this stuff about every day with God, spending time each day with God, reading the Bible, what's that about? And he was discipled and shown how this is kind of the fundamental stuff of the Christian life, time with God. And so he found a chair, literally, and he made that chair set in a certain view. I think he had a nice house with a nice view, which is helps. He made that chair this kind of crucial moment of his day. The chair facing out was where he met with God at the start of each day. And the story went on to say that over the years and decades, that time in that chair just shaped and formed this man in remarkable ways. He lived in the house for his whole life. So the chair was so important for him in terms of the time that he had every day to connect with God. So the question for us as Christians is, where's your chair? It might be a literal thing. You have a moment and a place each day. Or lifestyle might be such that there's a different time, different parts of the day. But able to, to give ourselves to people, especially strangers like Jesus does, that will come from ultimately giving ourselves with time to God. If Jesus prioritized time with the Father and the Spirit over and above people, being God himself, how much more do we need to find our chair with God? And then, if you want to kind of extend the, uh, the picture a little bit more, I suppose, we can start to create a chair for people. So last year we talked a bit about what it means to make a make place at our table, make room at our table, a seat at our table. We want to be the kind of church where anyone, any of you can come in with whatever background, worldview, questions, past, and anyone can take a seat at this table and can ask, observe, look, and encounter Jesus for themselves. We want to reflect that in our own homes and have homes with a door open and a seat at our table that people can come in and physically, like Jesus, through conversation and food, find a place of community, of family, of welcome and belonging. So, two questions for us: Where is our chair in terms of our time with God? And how are we doing at generating time with people? Not least, time in our home, at our table, over food and conversation. Not because not, whether you've got a big house, small house, great food, not much food, great cook, terrible cook. I, I throw that out the window. We're talking about a seat at the table, in conversation. Time with people comes from time with God. A. T for time. A for ask questions. So the passage goes on in verse 7. A woman from Samaria, after Jesus' long journey and he's weary at the well, came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. Now, the ESV translates this as an imperative, as a command. I think it's reasonable to assume Jesus would have framed it as a question. I don't think he just got to the well and kind of barked out an instruction to the woman. Oi, water! I think it would have been framed as a question. And Jesus asked a lot of questions. And just to prove to you that I'm not kind of tweaking this text to make it work to my ends, I discovered this week from someone that did did the hard work that Jesus asked 238 questions. Go through the Gospels and Jesus asked 238 questions. Uh, There's a guy called Andrew Wilson, some of you will know, who is one of the teaching pastors at a church in, in London in Catford. And he preached recently a whole message around, just specifically, Jesus and the way he used questions. And if you want to catch up on it, it's on on their uh, website, King's Church Catford. And uh, Andrew, who I know a little bit, says this, I find it remarkable that the only person in history who, in principle, never needed to ask a question, because there was no wisdom beyond his limits, nevertheless asked more regular searching and memorable questions than anyone who has ever lived. Jesus didn't need to ask any questions, unlike us. He wasn't blighted with degrees of ignorance. And yet he chose to ask questions over and over and over again. Why? Because he knew that questions in the context of conversation have great power. Great power. And in, in his message, uh, just one part of his message, Andrew kind of just categorizes the reasons why Jesus used so many questions. I just want to take you through those now because I think they're really, really helpful for us. The first reason, he says, that Jesus used questions was to clarify what people believe, which when in a conversation with someone potentially about faith or just about life generally can be really helpful. Jesus said things like, what is written in the law? How do you read it? Great question. He wanted to clarify what people believed, specifically then about the Old Testament, about the Jewish law. How do you read it? This is God asking people not because he needs to know, because he wants to clarify what people believe. And recently I was in a conversation with somebody who I, I didn't really know very well. I think the advantage I have over you guys sometimes is in our culture, people often ask, what do you do for a living? So I say, well, I'm a church pastor. So then we have the conversation's off and running. You gotta, you gotta, something has to happen with that. <laughs> Whereas the disadvantage is I don't have as many connections as you guys do with, uh, with those who aren't Christians. So it probably, it probably works, works both ways, so we can help each other. But in this conversation with somebody who I didn't really know, was a friend of a friend of Caroline's, we got in this conversation and he effectively asked, if God is good and all-powerful, then you tell me why there's so much evil and suffering in the world. I'm paraphrasing, but that was the basic question he was asking, which is a good question, by the way. A good question that we needs to be asked of Christianity, needs, needs to be asked of every worldview that we hold to. And I've learned, over the years, having faced that question in different ways, that the actual when that question comes, the thing to do is not to jump in with an answer. The thing to do is to ask a question. Because he could have been asking that from a kind of philosophical point of view, like more existentially. How is it you can have an all-powerful God who could stop suffering and a good God who is only for things that are good, how is that philosophically, logically contingent or consistent with all the evil and suffering we see? But I've kind of remembered, finally, having made the mistake a number of times, to ask a question which is basically like, sounds like you've experienced or you've observed some pretty significant suffering and hurt in your life. Is, is that the case? And he went on to say that that was very much the case. In fact, he was living right in the moment of a family member who was suffering from a significant illness. And I'm so glad I asked that question, because it clarified what he believed, which wasn't so much logically and philosophically, what's the issue here. What he believed, what he was saying was, viscerally, this doesn't seem right, that this person can suffer so much, and your God claims to be good and powerful. So questions clarify what people believe. Secondly, questions draw people out. I guess that was an example just then. In Luke chapter 8, verse 35, Jesus says, Who touched me? Referring to this woman who was suffering from this uh, bleeding. He knew exactly who touched him. So why did he ask it? Because he wanted to draw her out of the crowd. He wasn't just going to, bang, miracle heal her. He knew she lived in so much shame from what she was experiencing, as well as physical pain. That little question just draws her out of the, out of the crowd. And not only does he physically heal her, spiritually he blesses her and draws her to who God is in him. Just one little question. Who touched me? Now this, I guess this is a kind of helpful advice, just you know, relationships generally. But those questions can lead to really helpful gospel conversations, like the example I just gave. It just sounds like you've experienced some, some quite significant suffering or hurt in your life. Is that, is that the case? now we're into a very different conversation around the way that God himself has suffered and this is a God who's not distant and outside of suffering but has put himself right in the middle of it and we can have a conversation around the only faith that says God has suffered and been humiliated and has lived in this that's a different conversation that someone's being drawn into than I've got six philosophical points that I'd like to put to you about why this is possible I don't always get it right. I hate to add. I can give you lots of examples. Of I've not done this so well. Thirdly, questions provoke. Questions provoke. I love what Jesus says to Pontius Pilate before Pilate is about to commission his execution. Jesus says to Pilate, do you say this of your own accord or did others say to you about me? Did, <laughs> again, Jesus got his words out better than me. Do you say this of your own accord or did others say it to you about me? What a great question to ask. Pilate, are you saying this because you believe it or because you swallowed it from culture? Great question to ask. I've got a a bunch of mates, very precious to me, from university. We're approaching our 20th anniversary as a a bunch of mates. None of them are Christians as yet. And uh, I think we're definitely approaching 40 because our WhatsApp group has morphed from the normal kind of... I'll call it banter, for want of a better word. And we've got a little book group that now runs alongside. (laughs) (laughs) It would not have happened 10 years ago. Uh, And in this little book group, as are our vague attempts to sound learned to each other, we recommend a book, we read it, we review it. It's good. And uh, one of the lads recommended a book called Factfulness recently, than if you've you've read it. And um, one of the other... Uh, guys in the group who's a, a doctor, he commented on the group after we'd read this. He said, listen, fellas, it's all about science. Any belief system should be scientifically proven. To which I sort of piped up, can you prove that statement scientifically? <laughs> now, I hasten to admit, I don't go around like, trying to be clever and smart and trip people up, not at all. And this is a 20-year history where, believe you me, there's been a lot more provocative questions asked than that. But I was just saying, listen, you're making this kind of big statement that everything that's true needs to be empirically proven. But that statement that you've made, that can't be proven in a laboratory, so what do you think? Good conversation. I followed. I can, I can trust you. It's not unreasonable, as our very own Phil Moore, who oversees this church, says, sometimes to kick the ball down the other end of the field. To ask people to give a reason for the convictions that they hold. Questions can provoke that. As Andrew Wilson says, sometimes we don't need answers for people's difficult questions, we need questions for people's easy answers. Now don't get me wrong, this church we are all about in many ways inviting questions and challenges and doubts to the Christian faith. We want to get into that. But it's authentic and much more enjoyable if you receive some questions back the other way. So, number one. Oh, sorry, number four. (laughs) Questions can find out how we can serve people. Jesus says... Have you caught any fish? On one occasion. Another occasion he says, what do you want me to do for you? What do you want me to do for you? It's such a simple question, yet God asks that. God in human form asks that question. What do you want me to do for you? I think so often in me, I want to find out how to answer people's questions. Sometimes we just need to ask questions to find out how we can serve people. I heard a story recently of a, a friend of mine. And his wife went to a, a church like ours, in the New Ground Family Church, that she visited. Um, I think she was doing something—I can't remember what—at this, this church she visited and chatting somebody. And I think either in a conversation in the sort of little break we've just had, or through the morning, I'm not sure, but either way, through the conversation with the woman she was sat next to, I'm told she asked two questions. One was, "Is this your first time here?" And the second question was, "Is there anything I can pray for you for?" And she discovered that, yes, it was this woman's first time here. And in response to this question, can I pray for you about anything, the woman said, well, I've, had this, I've had a week that you, you couldn't imagine. It turned out she had, she had a child removed from her care that week. And just that little question, can I pray for you about anything, just opened up this whole, it drew her out into this whole conversation. She didn't say, you knew new here. Uh, yes, I am. Ah, in that case, you need to know a few things about the Christian faith and how this church works. Let me talk you through our sub- I can pray for you for? Yeah, I mean, if you're offering, I've had the worst week ever. And I learned this week, this woman who got, is now on an alpha course in this church, she's not become a Christian, but through that question, having her heart kind of opened and being met with something of the, like the questioning compassion of Christ, she's been provoked to explore whether whether Jesus is real and good and true and whether that kind of love is available persistently and consistently and forever. Questions can find out how we can serve people as well as provoking, drawing people out and clarifying what people believe. Number three, so T for time, A for ask questions, L for listen. I'm tempted to do a test halfway through, but I won't, I won't do that. Thanks. L for listen, because obviously questions are only effective if we listen to the answers. For those of us, be my observation, for those of us who are maybe on the more extroverted end of the spectrum or who are more kind of external processors, sometimes that when we're not talking, we're not listening, we're just waiting for our chance to talk again. You should know that. If you are an introvert, you probably do know that. That look in someone's eye. They're not listening to you. They're just gathering their thoughts for the next speech they want to make even just this morning I was chatting with somebody who's one of the staff members here at the Rose and we were chatting about our experiences of being here this week watching Captain Crowley's Mandolin which is a a lovely play and we were chatting about that and having quite an interesting conversation around kind of themes of tragedy and, and love and expectations and so forth and I just caught myself at one point thinking I'm not listening to what you believe about those things I am waiting for my next chance to speak and that is I think a challenge sometimes listening is such a powerful thing This is kind of Stephen Covey, seven, five habits type stuff when he says, listening is about seeking to understand before trying to be understood. I think often I'm pretty keen to be understood. The listening skill is so valuable. Some of you are very, very good at it, I might say, at listening and making sure you understand before trying to be understood. And scripture has been saying this kind of wisdom a long time before Stephen Covey. For example, in Proverbs chapter 18, verse 13. The writer puts it like this, if one gives an answer before he hears, it is his folly and shame. James chapter 1 verse 19 the New Testament. Let every person be quick to hear and slow to speak. Some of us are quite quick to speak, aren't we? Listening is so powerful. Jesus does it wonderfully with this woman. We'll get into the passage in a bit more in a second. He clearly listens to her. He does a lot of talking, but he listens to her. And I'll, I'll show you that in a moment in terms of how he answers, I think, proves that he listens to her. He gives her time. He gives two more days to her community to listen. Just think of a time in your mind's eye when someone listened to you. It's a profound experience, isn't it? Someone looks you in the eye, not in a kind of weird way, but in a <laughs> focused way. They nod and make the right kind of noises. It's important, isn't it? They say things like, go on. Well, they, do, they do things like they return back to something you said earlier in the conversation and ask you to build on that. They say things like, can you just explain that a bit more? That sounds really interesting. How did you, how did you feel when that, when that happened? Isn't it? Being listened to is a profound <laughs> experience. Being not listened to is not actually much fun. You might think, "Gosh, I can't ask all these punchy questions that provoke." Oh, can't I can't go and initiate a random conversation at the well slash water cooler at work. Hey, but listening, you listeners, don't underestimate the power that, that contains. So, little pause. So we actually land this. What's God saying to you right now? What's the application? What are we going to dig into in life groups this week? Is it about time? time with god the bottom line of every facet of the christian life where's your chair time with people where's their chair in your life have you got fire can you can the schedule be put on hold maybe not for two days but 10 minutes 15 minutes hey asking questions is that something you're going to broach this week And for some of us, the challenge is to kind of ask the Holy Spirit for a bit of boldness and courage. You're like, oh, initiating conversations, asking questions, asking provocative questions, asking questions that don't just kind of skirt around the stuff of life, but get into the the big questions of life from our meaning and truth and suffering and hope and life and death. Some of you are like, oh, yeah, sounds good in theory, a bit scary in reality. That's all right. Holy Spirit brings boldness to do that. Even questions that provoke. Some of us, we, lo- we love the conversations, love the questions. Maybe actually today God would say, would it be okay if the Holy Spirit led you to just give time, ask questions, listen, and that was the end of the conversation? How would you feel about that? How do you feel about walking away, not having given the answer, but listened and asked questions? I want you to land this with you. What's, what's God saying? I hope this is not just a Semi clever acronym, but a helpful means of God landing his commissioning of us. Right, let's get into the rest of the passage, some of which I've already touched on, but we want to land ourselves back in the text because it's the text that is ultimately teaching us. So, verse 9, Jesus having asked a question uh, for water, the Samaritan woman said to him, Jesus, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? for Jews had no dealings with Samaritans because of all the racial, religious, ethnic tension. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is that is saying to you, Give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with and the well is deep, where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and livestock. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Sorry, But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty. You'll have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You're right in saying I have no husband for you've had... Five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place people ought to worship. Jesus said to her woman, Believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here. When the true worshippers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship him spirit and truth. The woman said to him, I know the Messiah is coming. He was called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. T for time, A for ask questions, L for listen, K for know how to answer. So I don't want to undo what I've just been saying in terms of not needing to have an answer. But there is also a call in Scripture in 1 Peter 3.15 to be able to give an answer, a reason for the faith that we have. Jesus knows how to answer. I would suggest to you because he listens well. He listens well. I'll just give you one example. Um, In verse 9, the Samaritan woman expresses to her shock that he, a male Jewish rabbi, is even speaking to her, a female Samaritan widow slash divorcee that is unheard of culturally, religiously, ethnically in all kinds of ways and I would suggest that Jesus listens to that shock he listens to the sense of exclusion that she lives with as regards her gender her culture, her ethnicity, her religion and he basically tells her I have the gift of God and it's for you you notice that? I can give you living water he's beginning to say to her I hear your sense of exclusion you need to hear from me you are included he knows how to answer he doesn't get into a great discussion around female and Samaritan and rabbi he just says the gift of God is right here in front of you and it's for you you're not excluded you're included he knows how to answer often what we need to do is discern what's behind people's apathy people's questions, people's objections, people's uh, disagreement. We need to discern what's behind it. Then it comes to apathy. I've got a lot of friends, I think, who I would say are quite apathetic. They're not bombarding me with all the best questions about the Christian faith. Maybe you know the same thing. you like, I'd love to talk to my friends and my work colleagues. They just don't seem very bothered. That's a real part, I think, of secular Britain in the 21st century. But I tell you what, everybody is bothered about things like what's true and what's fake. People are bothered about what's, what, where does life go when suffering hits. People have got big views about what's right and what's wrong and what's just and what's unjust. People have got big questions about why does death feel so utterly wrong and final. People have got big questions about is there a meaning in life that will actually be consistent like I can stand upon and will endure. So often we've got to try and discern what's behind people's objections and even what's behind people's apathy. But nonetheless, we might think, you know, I'm not sure I have many answers. The words don't seem to come, even when the kind of open goal presents itself. Someone asks, the, I remember when someone, someone said to me, one of these lads actually from the WhatsApp group in university, he once said to me in the morning, this is like a hands-up question, I was living all over the place at university, I wanted to be uh, kind of helping people to connect with God, and at the same time I wanted to be really popular and liked and with the sporty lads. I lived with six sporty lads and got into all kinds of nonsense, living a double life. So my double life came together one weekend when the night before I'd been out getting outrageously drunk. And the next morning I was going to church. I thought, that's what you're supposed to do. And that morning, one of these friends said to me, and I quote, his name's Sam. If you ever meet him, I promise you can ask him. I quote, he said to me, where are you going? I said, I'm going to church. He's like, any chance that I could come? My answer was, ah, I'm not sure it would really be for your thing. He literally said, can I come to church with you and find out about God? And I said, ah, not really your thing. So even with the open goals, you know, we say the wrong thing, we're not sure what to say, let alone when someone says, I've been reading Stephen Hawking, I've got some really clear views on why the universe did indeed start from nothing, matter can invent itself, we don't need an explanation outside of time, chance and space. But, I've got some encouragement for you. What did Jesus say? Luke chapter 12, verse 12. Do not be anxious about how you should defend yourself or what you should say. For the Holy Spirit will teach you in that very hour what you ought to say. The question is, if you're a Christian, do you believe that? Do you pray that? Do you pray things like, Holy Spirit, would you lead me to a conversation today? And when you do, would you help me know what to say? Even if knowing what to say is precisely nothing. That's a promise that Jesus has made. He also made a promise that he would die and rise again. He did that. So we can trust his promises. It's not always easy to know what to say. So, and if, just another kind of thing to throw at you. On Tuesday the 4th of June... So we have encounter evenings at the beginning and the end of life group terms that Becca was talking about, and one in the middle. We'll be coming together as life groups to encounter uh, the presence of God, particularly in sung worship and spiritual gifts and intercessory um, prayer and so on. But this particular one, we're going to do a different kind of means of encountering God and worshipping him in spirit and truth. We're going to come together and have a kind of like a, a learning community seminar type evening where we help each other to know how to answer the big questions that are around amongst our friends, family, colleagues, and culture and stuff. It will not be me delivering lots of clever responses. I, that's not what's going to be happening. I'll just be helping to shape an evening which we come together in groups and work through what are the questions people ask, what are the objections, how can we equip each other to know how to answer. So Tuesday the 4th of June, Life Groups, can you be on the front foot in advance of that, in feeding through some of the questions, some of the topics, challenges that you think would be really helpful for us to get into. In the meantime, I'd love you to consider being there on Tuesday the fourth of june final point time ask questions listen know how to answer be secure in challenge and in being challenged what do i mean by that jesus was very comfortable in both being challenged and in challenging did you notice what the uh woman said to him in verse 12 are you greater than our father jacob in other words who do you think you are basically what she's saying ever had that as a Christian or something along those lines? Who do you think you are? Putting across these kinds of views, making these kinds of exclusive truth claims. And this is how Jesus responds to that challenge. Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again, but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water welling up to eternal life. God gets challenged, who the heck do you think you are? If anyone had any right to say, right, I'll tell you exactly who I am, you sit yourself down. It would be Jesus. Just lets it go. let it go. And instead, having discerned something in her heart that longs for a life that is satisfying, and a relationship that is satisfying and that works, and isn't like sand through her fingers, he says to her, I've got living water that will satisfy you. How comfortable are you with being challenged? Jesus is very secure about it. Twitter is a great means, a great force for good, it's also thoroughly depressing. Because often on Twitter, you just see Christians getting really offended all the time. A lot of my mates, that would be their objection, frankly. Or one of their objections about Christianity is you guys just seem to be offended quite a lot. If you know who you are in Christ, a child of God, along the lines of could Pray before, one over whom the Father sings and says, That's my son, that's my daughter, in whom I'm well pleased, you can stand secure. If you believe what Becca prayed, I've got an eternal inheritance that can never fail or disappear. There's a love spoken over me and put upon me that nothing can take away. In fact, I can't even describe how high and broad and wide and deep it is. If you know that, believe that, and experience that, when someone challenges you, you can let it go. You might ask a question straight back. Jesus asked 29. When Jesus was asked this question, Blah, blah blah Jesus was asked a lot of questions and challenges. On 29 times, when he was on 29 occasions, when he was asked a question, he asked the question straight back. So that's a good thing to do, but not because he was insecure, panicking, getting aggressive and insecure. And pa- no, totally secure. Are you? Jesus told us people would hate the gospel. Said people would persecute all kinds of things. We don't even see the half of it. I'll be in Istanbul next week and have a little glimpse. People have come to faith and their families have cut them off and their bosses have sacked them. So, come on folks, a bit of perspective. Some might give you a little nasty look, not invite you to drink after work. It could be be more than that and there are other other areas where life could become tricky. But we've got to be secure with challenge. And also, we've got to be secure enough to do the challenging because Jesus does that as well. (laughs) Verse 22, hey, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. Pretty clear challenge. You're wrong. Let me tell you what's right. And even in verse 17, he is secure enough to challenge in the sense that he brings up her deepest, most personal past. In all likelihood of the culture of the time, she's probably been either widowed or divorced, abandoned, probably, four times. And now she's with this guy and they're not married, which was culturally unacceptable at the time. And he's secure enough to delve, if I can use that word, into her most intimate and hurtful and painful and shameful aspect of her life. Not because he's digging around, trying to expose her or or make himself look good or embarrass her or humiliate her. He's secure. And so he can say, look, I, I know you. I know all of you. In fact, nothing you can say can shock me. Do you believe that if you're a Christian? Do you believe nothing you can say to God will shock him? Now, even even better, as an implication of that, wouldn't it be if we were at a church where we believe that about each other? Where we genuinely believe, I can be truly vulnerable and authentic. I can reveal my deepest hurt and pain, and I'll be accepted. I might well be challenged, even provoked, but somebody will minister like Christ to me. They won't look at me wide-eyed and panic. They won't get angry with me. They'll love me and affirm me and lead me into all that has, all the healing and reconciliation there is in Jesus. we we'll am build a church together like that.